This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Humans of Space, a podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine and hosted by Neve Shaw that looks at the individuals who shape our understanding of the universe and how they got to be where they are today. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skynightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. James Green, or Jim Green, recently retired as NASA's chief scientist. And boy, does he have some stories to share. I think this chat with Jim is going to be really interesting, and I hope you do too. Good evening, uh, Jim. How are you? It's always a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, and thank you so much for joining me on my own podcast, uh, Humans of Space. How, How are you keeping this evening? Well, I'm just great. Thank you so very much for inviting me. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, and you know, we, we've um, I've had you I've had you speak at, at some Irish events over the years, mm-hmm. and of course, I initially met you at the Space Studies Program, and um, I always say, uh, you know, you you know this by now in all introductions before you is that, you know, you you really are uh, terrifically passionate about all things um, space and science, but also you have a, a fantastic grasp of explaining it to people who probably feel that science and and space is beyond them. So um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation um, very much. Well, I have to tell you how easy that is for me to do. And it didn't start (laughs) out that way. (laughs) Um, You know, I was a scientist, still a scientist. But I mean, as I started out uh, in my early career, uh, working on some pretty esoteric topics, you know, things that are that are um, uh, things you don't see, like magnetic fields, uh, radiation you don't see, like uh, uh, radio waves, you yeah. know, and, and how they're generated in magnetospheres. And, yeah. uh, you know, a, a really complicated set of uh, topics. Um, I, uh, I, I could have easily fallen into the, uh, you know, the jargon, the way scientists, uh, you know, think about, well, doesn't everyone know these kind of things? And so you just build on it from that perspective. But what really, really uh, changed my whole approach turned out to be teaching at ISU. Oh, nice. and, uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I started in, uh, I think it was 1992 um, at Kitakushu. And uh, they needed uh, they needed two talks. They wanted they wanted to talk about um, uh, magnetospheric physics. Hey, great, that's me. And then yeah. they wanted uh, they wanted somebody to talk about uh, computer networking and and uh, what was coming on big at the time, which was the World Wide Web. Which mm-hmm. which uh, I, I was also doing a lot of that within NASA. And so uh, I, I was there for a month, and I really realized. That you know, I, I could give a talk for for the hour, but but the questions that came and and my interactions with the students at at dinner and 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 lunch and and breakfast, you know, because we were yeah. all together, uh-huh. uh, really told me that I wasn't using that time very appropriately because I had 
many of the same questions because I didn't explain things very well. So I really, really began the process of, um, uh, once I started to be invited on a regular basis after that to ISU, I began working on my talks almost immediately at the mm-hmm. end of the summer for the next year, okay? And I would hone that based on what the students, you know, couldn't understand. So I thought, okay, i got to do it graphically. But then that evolved into uh, really something that um, I, uh, I, I now do, and that is I recognize that all I need to do is explain things the way I learned them the way I uncovered them, the way I all of a sudden said, ah, that's the concept. I got it now. And so when I, when I talk then, I just, I just go back in time and say, how did you come up with this idea and how does this idea fit together with everything else you know? And that's how it's done. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, but also I think, you know, I think you just do add a little bit of extra magic dust because I've I've sat in on your lectures at ISU, the International Space University, and it and it really is incredible that you can take such complex ideas. Because I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? For you know, you, you know, it's this program, this residential program, you know, with all these different disciplines in engineering and science, and you can't start assuming people already have a degree in science. You have to start yeah. assuming they they have some grasp of you know science, technology, engineering, and maths, but but nothing beyond that. But yes, I. I I agree with you, but I, you know, I also sat through other lecturers who also have been there, you know, and also delivering great content. But I think you do have something a little bit extra. So please take the compliment, and because uh, you know, it's not just me who says it. I think you you are always one of the most popular lecturers every summer, and this summer is no exception. I heard it around here too, so I'm not at all surprised. You know, so okay. So well, so uh, yeah. So how how are you been doing? Are you still working from home in in um, in Washington, or are you back? in the offices yet well it's a it's hybrid you know in 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 the sense that i'll go in perhaps one or two days a week um uh, we're probably moving towards uh, you know maybe in several weeks an opportunity where i'll be in maybe three or four days a week but not now um uh, mm. you know we're we're uh, nasa's very um concerned um and it, its approach is um uh, the right approach. It's employees first, and indeed, they work really hard in making the environment safe for everyone to come to work, no matter if it's in a clean room or um, uh, you know in a in a building with others. Yeah, my I, and rightfully so, I guess. Until we know that we're we're out the other side of it. So, what are you what are you working on at the moment? Let's start with that. What what is um what's what's on the top of your paper pile these days? <laughs> Well, I'm actually working on several papers. Uh, uh, I just uh, completed uh, probably the second in, uh, the second draft of a paper that I think we will submit um, on uh, dark matter. Um, it's a, it, it, I'm a co-author um, uh, because I don't uh, I don't uh, really profess to be the very top in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm working with, uh, you know, a really fantastic uh, scientist who's um, who really is, uh, you know, I work well together. So that's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I've got a paper that's uh, going to come out in Nature pretty quick. Oh, congratulations. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you. It's an astrobiology paper. Um, it's been accepted and it's in galley proofs. And, and because of that, I, it's embargoed, they say, so you can't talk about that much. I've got another paper that's also uh, going through the referee uh, process on um, a Mars magnetosphere, how to mm. create a magnetosphere to protect Mars, allowing it to uh, not get its atmosphere stripped as much and therefore continue, continue to outgas and build a thicker atmosphere which then of course will change its temperature yeah and then i just uh uh, finished proofs of a book on the solar system at 50 i have a big chapter in that i've sent that in and i've uh, finished a section of a book on mars uh, which uh tashkan is uh publishing uh and uh so that's kept me busy. It certainly has. <laughs> and is that your, are you mainly writing these days? Is it, is, is like, 
I'm sure that your career has changed and let's we will go back to the start um, shortly. But but now is is most of your career about um, sharing results and, uh, and and writing those reviews or what, what does it look like for you? Yeah, now? once you once you get into being a scientist, it, 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 it's I, I can't find a time where I could just stop writing. Yeah. I did have a time as head of planetary from 2006 to 2018 that it was difficult to do. But even during that time period, um, uh, I was involved in three, maybe four major science papers. Uh, but uh, almost equally that number, in fact, more than that number, on more popular articles. I, um, I, I switched from doing science uh, as a as a main thing in terms of then communicating to the public through articles, um, uh, I have two articles I wrote for Sky and Night. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And then, mm-hmm. Uh huh. And then you know worked on uh, some things with Scientific American and and um, uh, actually Room. I've had uh, yeah. several articles in Room. I'm writing one right now with a, a couple authors on Room, and those are magazines that reach many many different types of people. Um, you know, some, some things you see on the newsstand, uh, all the way to things that are a little more professional, but, but still overview articles. So right, writing is just one of those things I, I will continue to do, what a scientist does, I guess. Is it important to you that, um, you know, that you reach the, the general pop, uh, public, you know, not just your peers in science? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very important. Why, why, do, why is that important? Well, uh, okay. Um, I have to tell you, I get excited about it when I see they're excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I can see that um, what I've said interests them uh, or fascinates them, it's um, you know, as a scientist, I've had a number of aha moments where I'm doing scientific research and I run across something or figure something out that no one in the world has ever figured out. This is the first time it is understood, and it's my job to tell people about it. And we do that, scientists, uh, by communicating with our peers. We go to conferences, we give paper, you know, our, our, our paper, and then we write that up, and then we submit it for publication, and that paper then gets, gets to a broader scientific uh, audience. But uh, so many of those things don't get into, uh, you know, the textbooks, as they say, for years and years and years. And so uh, there's quite a gap in terms of what students uh, read and understand in school and what's really happening in the field, because it's just moving like, like lightning. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, in my lifetime, we have discovered a third zone in the solar system made up of icy bodies, and we've been observing them. They're called Kuiper Belt objects. And with New Horizons, not only have we flown by Pluto, which turns out to be a Kuiper Belt object, but another primitive body that it was put together, the very early stage of our solar system called Arrokoff. Uh, that was not known. I mean, it yeah. was theorized that these things may be out there, but it really wasn't known until we actually started seeing them in the 90s. I mean, when I was at the University of Iowa, there, and I was in astrophysics, you know, I got my undergraduate degree in astronomy, optical astronomy, and so we, you know, we were at an observatory, and I worked uh, also in high school in an observatory, which got me excited about the field. But there was no hope of finding small itty bitty planets around stars. Okay. And now we know there are more planets in our galaxy than there are stars in our galaxy. That occurred in my lifetime, my professional lifetime, my professional career. I mean, fantastic things are going on. We We can't tell the public enough about what's happening. Yeah. What's it like being in the room, uh, Jim, when those discoveries are made? Because you must be very close to them. So, you know, when something like that gets confirmed, whether it's, you know, that we discovered that the existence of all these exoplanets or even, as you say, that we've found more objects in the Kuiper Belt. What does that feel like when you're in the room and you realize that 
for the very first time, we have discovered something completely new or we've confirmed something? Well, it's, it's a, it's a dopamine rush. (laughs) 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 There's a wave of excitement that, that, that flows over the brain. It's absolutely (laughs) unbelievable. That's what drives us as scientists. Yeah. Yeah. We are addicted to discovery we are addicted to uncovering the unknown and then putting that together into a larger tapestry of other discoveries to really understand the origin and evolution of our solar system and how we as human beings are where we are in our evolutionary track. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. We are the first species on this planet with the ability to explore the solar system, not just with probes, but with our bodies. And we do that. And we're going to continue to do that. We are the first species that, that, that realize we can become extinct. Think about that. And, and because of that, we worry about the evolution of the earth, our climate, uh, what we know about the past, how that could affect us in the future, like being hit by asteroids or comets, you know, that, it, that created the extinction of the dinosaur. These are things that can happen to us. And we have now become uh, universe aware. Mm. Um, and how does it, you know, like... As somebody on the outside, I get really excited when I see launches of new science missions. And then when the results come in, I get excited. And as you say, it's even more exciting for, for, for you and, and the team when, when you actually get results confirming or denying something. But, um, you know, the, the, the bigger picture, how do you prioritize you know, because these are big questions that you're answering, yes, not just right. for science, mm-hmm. but also as a species, you know, because it is deeply philosophical. The second we leave Earth, it does make us think about our own survival and are we alone? And, and there are yeah, so many things right. we think about. How does how do you make the decision about which mission or which path? Because there are so many things yeah, we don't know right. and so many things yeah. we can't measure. How, how do you start those kind of questions? Okay, it actually turns out to have evolved into an approach that's just the perfect approach. Yeah. It used to be, you know, when NASA started in the 60s, any, you know, let's just do something that's successful. We we couldn't even we couldn't even land on we couldn't even hit the moon. We, you know, we're trying to hit the moon. We fly by it, you know? Okay, so you know, any 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 good idea out there, let's try it. Okay. Well, that has evolved where now scientifically uh, each and every one of us recognize that that based on our own perception and view should not be the approach we should go forward with because we might miss other important perspectives and views. And so we come together as a group of scientists, uh, and, and it's done by the Nas- uh, National Academy of Science. NASA charges the National Academy of Science with bringing together the top scientists in the field and debate it out, discuss it, come to resolution and figure out what the top things that we should go after in this next decade. And they write a report and that report is called the decadal. Uh, So when the decadal comes out, they do it in astrophysics, in heliophysics, earth science, uh, biological uh, science and uh, fundamental physics, and of course planetary science. And then, ha- like these are these are missions that are incredibly long in the planning and then in the execution. So how right. how many years ahead? I know that you're thinking about your plan for the decade, but you're, but I would imagine that there's work done before then, and then there also is. their execution. Yeah. So so what kind of timelines are you talking about when you're having those conversations? Yeah. So the decadals. You know, one stops and another one begins. But what happens is the beginning decadal always takes into account the things left undone 
and then and then reviews those and says, okay, uh, you need to complete these as you move into the next decade. And that allows us to then take the missions that sometimes take six, seven, eight, ten years or more to be able to figure out, you know, and build and launch, uh, you know, be able to pull that off and go do it. Uh, you know, there's several missions, you know, for instance, like uh, um, Parker Solar Probe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to go to the sun, orbit the sun as close as we could get to find the origin of the solar wind for decades. But we couldn't do it because we didn't know how to keep it safe from burning up. So we had to develop the technologies and the heat shields and the capabilities to do that. We, we wanted to go to Europa for 20 years, you know, in planetary. Uh, but we were struggling with the fact that Europa sits in a very intense radiation belt at Saturn. And if we've got something into orbit around Europa, it won't last more than a couple months. And, and is that enough time to figure out what we want to know? We want to know. If there's potential life there, is it a habitable world that we think it could be? You know, does geysers squirt out the cracks, which we think we see from Hubble here, you know, orbiting the Earth? And we look out there and there we see Europa and, and we see activity and we think the cracks have opened and the, and, and, and the geysers have, are spurting out from the ocean that's underneath that icy crust. Well, we figured out how to do it, but it actually took a couple decades to really figure out the best approach that allows us to get a spacecraft, in this case, it's going to be in orbit about Jupiter, and then does multiple flybys of Europa. We had to wait until we could see how much we learned from that concept by doing Cassini at Saturn. Cassini, of course, was a fabulous mission, and it used Titan as its gravity assist. It used Titan as we went by it. We could we could use that that fabulous body to pull us in, change our and, and throw us out, change our trajectory, and do all kinds of stuff. And then we realized every time we flew by Titan, we got a strip of information, and now we know about eighty five percent of that globe. Now it used to be. The only way to get global information is really get into orbit. But the concept then of of having the ability to do multiple flybys and enabling one each and every time then to put a global picture together was realized with Cassini uh, flying by Titan the way it did. And now we're going to do exactly the same with Europa. So we're going to go in and out of the radiation belts. Now that turns out to be perfect at Jupiter because there's a number of things we then can learn. Each flyby will enable us to get high-resolution data, and then as we get out of the radiation belt, we can send all that data back, look at it, study it, and then figure out what the next approach is. And so we can spend actually a couple years in orbit Mm -hmm. as we assemble the global picture of Europa in a way that we never thought imaginable if we had to get into orbit and do it all in two months. That's just, that's just too hard on everybody, and, and we, would, we would really not do a very good job, I can guarantee. And the level of detail and preparation for each mission I find astounding. You know, the, the, the accumulation of the instruments, the different teams involved in each of those instruments, how they get assembled, how it all gets put together. And then, you know, the, the, the actual mission itself and then gathering that data. There are so many moving parts and elements yeah. to it. Um, I think it's incredible that we can do this. And like, there's so many people involved behind each of those decisions and each of those elements and each of those instruments, and then scientists then recording it back. And that's just one mission of many missions of one little tiny part of, you know, our, our solar system. Um, and yet over the years, you have probably seen the gathering of so much information that has kind of become, you know, 
our normal version of, of how we understand things to be. Of the years that you've been um, at NASA, Jim, are there kind of two or three missions that were stand out for you in terms of major shifts in our understanding of our place in the bigger picture or just like the most exciting missions ever? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I was head of planetary science uh, from 2006 to 2018, as I mentioned. Uh, and, and, in, and in that 12 years, which is longer than anyone has ever done that, no one has ever done 12 years, it's a very difficult job. I was able to, you know, uh, cross through a planetary decadal from one and into the next. And indeed, I saw just an enormous number of things. And so I would give, as I said, love to give public lectures, and I'd go out and 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 talk about missions and you know what what whatever uh, you know I was asked to talk about in some of these cases, and I'd always have uh, you know the the youngsters of the audience come up and ask me a question, and and when they do, the top question on their mind is, well, what's my favorite planet? Okay. Yeah. Which is pretty much what you just asked me. Yeah. And so uh, my response is this. Uh, as head of planetary science, I love all my children equally. And I have to tell you that I, each and every mission I've gotten tremendously excited about, you know, because we're doing them because they are right at the forefront of answering a series of questions we needed to know. And each and every one of them are, are fabulous in the way they, they are put together, as you point out, but then actually accomplish their mission and, and make spectacular measurements we've never made before. And I can get excited about everything they ever do. It's so easy. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's just, it's just one fun thing after the next. Now the hard stuff of being head of planetary is, you know, I have to I have to be able to ensure that our programs are prioritized. I have to be able to make sure I can work with the administration and Congress and administer the budget, and that you know when we have problems, figure out how to pay for those problems, how to overcome obstacles that enable us then to move on. You know when. Because planetary science uh, has certain windows when we launch, you know, as planets go around the sun, the best time to go to places are when there's certain alignments where you can then leave the Earth, then you're actually orbiting the sun, and then move to a different place and cross an orbit when that object is right where it's supposed to be, and then you encounter it, and then you either get into orbit or you fly by it or you know, you, you then perform your science. And so that requires a window here on Earth. And so if you miss that window, that alignment may take years before it comes back around. And that's an enormous amount of money that you then have to pay to, to make sure everybody is still employed, working together, doing a variety of different things that... Um, uh, you wouldn't have had to do otherwise if you just got it off the ground. So how did you deal with the pressure of that? Because obviously you're juggling. So so what you just said there to me sounds that you, your role is, you know, making sure that the science happens. But there are many hats that you have to wear in order to do that. And how did you how did you learn to cope with that kind of pressure? Because I'm sure you you have to being chief scientist. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um uh, and there were some examples for which um, uh, I was under enormous pressure, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, but um, uh, I, I, I just uh, gutted it out. Uh, I just uh, uh, I didn't always dwell on. I, I, I'm very I, I'm a very optimistic guy. <laughs> I have to I have to tell you, one of my supervisors it would call me Pollyanna every once in a while. <laughs> You know, you know, and, and he would and he would say, "Hope is not a management tool, Green. What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and I knew he was right. Yes, I was positive. Yes, I hoped everything would work. But behind that, I knew what we needed to do to make sure that it did work. For instance, we were landing Curiosity on the surface of Mars on August sixth, twenty twelve, and. Um, uh, I decided this was such an important mission. I really needed to 
make sure everyone on the face of the earth knew what we were doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, uh, a year before I brought in a crack team of people um, uh, to help me not only at JPL, uh, but also at NASA headquarters to help formulate a plan on how to uh, do public engagement. You know, social media was coming along in so many different ways. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm not, you know, a, a social mediaist uh, person. So I needed help in all these areas. And so uh, we, were, we were doing all kinds of stuff. We were going to show real time what was going on, broadcasting from the from the control center at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, broadcasting that everywhere in the world that wanted it, even at Times Square in New York City, right on the big jumbotron. Okay? Yeah. And my my supervisor at the time came in my office and said, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) And I said... I said, I'm going to tell everybody about this spectacular landing we're about ready to do. And he said, well, what happens if it crashes? And I said, well, someone will be fired. I know who that is. And that will be me. And I'm okay with that. And he said, yes, that's probably true. But I want you to think about what you're doing here. And he walked out of my office and I thought, well, okay, he's got a really good point. Uh, Pollyanna is maybe too Pollyannish. Maybe we are not talking about how hard it is. Now, I know how hard it is to land on Mars. So I turned to my top people and I said, look, we've got, we've got to be able to also talk about the risk because this is not a slam dunk. We're going to land a one-ton rover on Mars in a way we've never done before using a technique that looks absolutely crazy, and we call it the sky crane. Okay, and so um, how do we how do we talk about that? And so um, uh, uh, JPL produced a uh, two or three minute little short movie called The Seven Minutes of Terror. And it did nothing but talk about what had to go right from one end of it to the other. And it was riveting and it was right what I needed because it did explain that um, each and every one of these processes that had to go right, we've never ran or tested them because this is the first time we're using them and we have to do it at Mars. And when we hit the top of the atmosphere and it radios back that we've hit the top of the atmosphere and in the control room, we hear that the, that the Curiosity capsule has hit the top of the atmosphere, it's already landed because we were like 10 minutes light travel time away from Mars, and it only takes seven minutes to make it to the surface one way or another, all right? And then all the things that had to work, um, and they did, of course. And then we used that same basic concept uh, as we put together the next mission, uh, which was Perseverance, which I was um, um, really... uh, quite involved with. I sold Perseverance as the, as the mission that we needed to do next. And um, uh, JPL at that time wanted to do a helicopter. And I said, well, you have to propose it. We don't just pick things, you know, you have to propose it. They did. And um, uh, we didn't accept it right away. We waited to see how Perseverance was coming together and finally decided, okay, let's figure out a way to do it because this is an important technology and we really need to figure out how we could fly on the planet. And this is our best shot. And man, did that work too. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you know, yeah, it, but it, uh, it really came together. Yeah. And you know, I think it's really interesting. I'm really glad that that, that your supervisor came in and said, you know, um, be really careful because I think, I think we, started attracting a whole new audience to science when we started talking about the risk and all the people involved. And and definitely that, that movie, Seven Minutes of Terror, was probably the first time we really kind of genuinely showed how much scientists care. But also, you know, there's only so much you can plan and there's only so much you can do, but we then have to hope that um, what what we have designed will work. 
and it yeah. becomes suspenseful. Like I don't, I don't know what yeah. the numbers are for the perseverance um, landing, but I but I, you could see that it had a huge ripple across the world. I mean, it, you know, yeah. I I hosted a watch party in Cork, and yeah. we all yeah, watched yeah. it, and it attracted a whole new audience of people because you brought us in, and it, and it became really personal. And I think it's it makes the missions all the more special. And um, and, and I mean, you know. A perseverance mission was just it was just so exciting and then getting the data almost straight away knowing that it had landed and then the, it just kept giving that then we got the movie of it landing and then we had to wait for the helicopter and then moxie and then all these different things and, <laughs> and it's just so well communicated but you bring us in and and i think that that if that's what it took for you to take that risk then i think definitely in terms of you know communicating with the public it was just gold it was, you hit you hit a line of opals as they say in, in Australia. Well, I, I have to tell you, the best thing about it too is I didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's just from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, that would have been unfortunate, but that's not what I mean. Yeah. So, oh, so okay, okay. So, so Jim, you know, where where did it all kind of begin? I mean, where did your inspiration for science come from? I mean, like, not everybody gets to become chief scientist. So, so there's two questions there about where it all yeah. began and, and what is it that you think you have that has kept you constantly moving forward in your career? Uh, well, uh, I didn't realize I was excited about science um, uh, and, uh, until I got into high school and my brother was in college and, and he had said to me uh, uh, one day, uh, you know, what do you plan to do? Do you plan to go uh, to college? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, what are you going to major in? Well, I hadn't really thought of it. You know, he's putting me on the spot, you know, mm. and you, you know, you don't want to act dumb in front of your older brother. <laughs> and so I said, and he's four years older. And I said, uh, uh, well, I'll figure out something. And he said, well, well, what are you good at? And I said, well, I'm, I'm really good at history. I'm really good at math. I'm, I'm really good at science. And he said, "Great, pick one." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I said, uh, "Okay, I pick history." And he goes, "History? What are you going to be? What are you going to do with that?" <laughs> okay. And so uh, what, what he was doing, uh, you know, uh, was was challenging me to think about my future, you know, because I hadn't really done that before. And uh, and I I decided. Um, you know, those were the th three things I was going to be good at, and I was just going to use my high school career to explore them. I, I set a goal in mind that I was going to do the, be the best in each of those classes. I was going to get, uh, you know, for instance, in history, every test question right and all the extra credit and be the best student the professor ever had. And I set that goal, okay? And, and after the end of the year, I only missed one point. So I didn't quite reach the goal, but no one was near me. <laughs> but, the, but, but what it did is it forced me to set a goal and then work hard to obtain it and figure out what I needed to do to obtain it. And then along the way, I ran into a chemistry teacher who I dearly loved, and he was so good. Um, and he ended up being uh, uh, the uh, director of an observatory that the high school had. And, uh, and so he taught astronomy after school uh, and because they wouldn't put it in the curriculum. So 20 of us, you know, stayed after school and took the course. And so I, I observed with a 12-inch Alvin Clark refractor. Uh, I, did, I made instruments for the back of it. I, I took solar photography. I did uh, a whole series on Mars. I, I had things that were published in Sky and Telescope. And I was still in high school. And so... When I left uh, high school and went to the University of Iowa, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was to be a ground-based optical astronomer. And so I started in the astronomy course, and I walked into, uh, you know, Astronomy 101 at the University of Iowa with 400 students. Okay, this is the biggest, biggest classroom they had, and actually it was in their older building. The building was probably made in 1911 or something. You know, every little wood benches and everything yeah. else you would expect, you know. Uh, and uh, the teacher was James Van Allen. 
Oh, and, uh, Yeah, and he was spectacular. What a fabulous teacher. As you know, here he's teaching freshmen, and, and it was very exciting. And so, well, at the end of the semester, you know, I thought, well, you know, how do I distinguish myself? He's got all these students, you know, there's going to be, you know, maybe 20 A's and, you know, and, and 80 B's and, you know, all, you know, all the other stuff. And I'm just a number, right? So um, uh, second semester, I took second semester uh, astronomy, but he didn't teach that. And so I had a little, a little place in my course catalog called Readings in Astronomy, and so I took that, and it was going to be taught by staff, okay? That was the name in the course catalog, which means, and I didn't know that at the time, which means a graduate student's going to teach you, okay? But it didn't matter. It was readings in astronomy. And so um, uh, there it was, room 701, Van Allen Hall, opened the door, very first day of class, walked into this huge storeroom. I go, this can't be right. This is, this is a storeroom. There's magnetic tapes. There's printouts, there's bookcases, and, and, and it looked like a, a mess, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing in the room going through the course catalog trying to figure out, geez, is this the right room? And Van Allen leaned behind one of the bookcases where his desk was and looked at me and he said, yes, Jim, uh, this is uh, the room, and you're my only student. So I had uh, James Van Allen for a second semester all to myself, and he taught me how to do research. What I did was I did, uh, I had taken pictures of the sun, full disk sun, for six months during a solar maximum year. And so I had sunspots galore, and he got so excited about that, I was showing him what I was doing with the telescope in Burlington. Uh, Iowa, where I where I where I went to high school, and um, uh, so I did solar rotation. I mapped the sunspots as they went around and found out that the sun doesn't rotate as a solid body; it rotates differentially, faster at the equator than as it is at higher latitudes. And so I wrote a scientific paper, and he was the referee. And I I followed exactly the same thing that I would do today in writing a scientific paper. And so as a freshman, I really got it. And he was my other gravity assist beyond my uh, high school chemistry teacher. That's incredible. That's incredible. So that was, it's interesting that sometimes you just can be lucky with the people you meet in your life that just sort of, it's like they were kind of, you know, it's like that there's a kind of a destiny to it that they can just sort of focus you and just point you in the right direction. But they're, they're spectacular. Those two people, you know, could have inspired anybody, but the fact that you were already interested, they really helped you focus. And then you, you, your was, was your first job at NASA then? Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. it was. Wow. Uh, I, uh, you know, I ended up um, uh, writing scientific papers as a graduate student. You know, I was well known. I'd, I'd gone to seven or eight conferences, and and, and uh, by that time, I was doing pretty well talking publicly. The first couple talks I ever gave in front of three hundred scientists was a nightmare, <laughs> as I remember. <laughs> I don't want to repeat them ever again, but I remember them, <laughs> and I'm glad they're over. Uh, but I just got determined that I got to do better. You know, when I get up in front and, 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 um, I forgot who it was that told me this, maybe it was one of my other professors, but, um, when I was fretting over my next scientific talk, um, uh, they said, um, uh, why, why are you so upset? Because you're the expert. You know more about what you're going to say than they do. You're there to tell them what you know, you're teaching them. That flipped the entire equation to me. Rather than being standing up there like it's thesis defense time, okay, which is nerve-wracking as all get out as you go through your, your you know your education. Um, you're there now. It's flipped. Now you're telling them what they want to know. That's why the man that changed everything. Then I got up with all kinds of confidence. All I had to do was tell them what I found out and what I knew. And that made it so much easier. And that worked, that worked great. So that right at the end of, um, 
getting uh, my PhD, I was pretty well known. I had five job offers during a time when several of the grad students were not even getting one. And so um, I went to Marshall Space Flight Center. Now, many, many people would have said, gee, you have, you have offers to go to, you know, some of these industry places and make all kinds of money and do all kinds of things. And, and they're well known. And I had another job offer at Goddard Space Flight Center. And Marshall Space Flight Center is not really well known for, for some of the science you're interested in. Why did you go there? And the simple reason was they were starting a group and they were building and, and I felt I could get in on the ground floor. I wasn't a little fish in a big pond. I was there as, a, as an important part. And man, was I right. That, that experience at Marshall Space Flight Center was absolutely unbelievable. I had opportunities uh, to uh, uh, do all kinds of things for NASA. Uh, not only in in the area of computer science, because I helped build NASA's first internet in 1980. Uh, and then also I ended up in the neutral buoyancy tank pushing astronauts around because <laughs> I was also a scuba diver, as you know, it was one of the things that I did. So it was really easy for me to just, just get into things. So I, 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 I in looking back, uh, how did I get where I was, was your question. And the answer is, some people think I have a character flaw, and that is I rarely say no. And I find that when I say yes, even to things that I'm not quite sure about or that I may not know much about, that I always learn a tremendous amount by by going through the process and doing things. And uh, so I kept saying yes you know, and I took those opportunities and ran with them. And, uh, you know, when when um, I got called by the administrator to uh, uh, to take this job, I said yes. <laughs> and I think we are all the richer for it. Um, I think oh, that was you. one of the best decisions you ever made, Jim. We're coming to the end um, of our chat. Um, tell us a little bit about what's coming up for the moon, because I think we are really entering into a very exciting very exciting chapter, I think, in, in you know, returning to the moon. But are, are you involved in any of the science elements of that? Is there anything that, that, that you, you, must, you must have some influence on? You have to be. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I, I just wrote a paper last year that was published uh, in October in Science Advances, and it was about the magnetosphere of the moon. And uh, it takes me back uh, to... Uh, the early formation of the Earth and the Moon uh, at a time when uh, things were colliding to create planets. They accreted, and accretion is a violent process where two objects hit each other, explode, but the gravity puts them back together and makes a bigger object out of it. And the Moon was created that way by an object about the size of Mars hitting the proto-Earth, and the end result is the Earth, but an object that forms the moon, and it forms actually very close to the Earth. Uh, and then over time, uh, it begins the process of moving away from the, uh, from the Earth. Now, the hollow rocks that we brought back tell us that during that early phase of the moon, it also generated a magnetic field. So the Earth and the moon generated magnetic fields, and they are intertwined and that allows atmosphere from the Earth to go to the moon. And then the moon, of course, is being hammered by other objects, big ones, in fact, just like the Earth was. Uh, and, and the moon is outgassing, and it creates its own atmosphere. And the magnetic field of the moon protects that atmosphere. And some of that atmosphere collapses into the north and south poles, just like our north and south poles are the cold areas, the cold traps, you know, the north and south poles of the moon are the coal traps. And the magnetic field then is allowing material from early Earth to come and collapse into those northern polar and southern polar regions. That's what we now know is in these permanently shadowed regions. Collapsed atmosphere from the early Earth and the moon. 
uh, water from comets and meteorites. Uh, and, in, and in fact, we, we now know, and we didn't know this, but a handful of years ago, that there's probably several hundred million tons of water trapped in these permanently shadowed regions. Enormous important resource, and this is why we're going to the sub- southern hemisphere, and specifically the South Pole. So the Artemis program is being designed that way. We're building the rocket right now that will take us there with the Orion capsule. Uh, the plan, of course, is uh, uh, to uh, launch a whole series of other probes. We're getting ready right now over the next couple of years to see then a really brisk uh, uh, set of missions being launched to the moon that will land uh, and make all kinds of scientific measurements and prepare ourselves to go for humans to the South Pole. And so in a matter of a handful of years, we'll have the, the first woman and the next person on the moon, on the south pole of the moon. And, and, and it's going to be done in a way that it's not going to be a short thing. They're not going to be there for a day or two and come home. We want them there for longer periods of time, a week or more, several weeks, maybe even a month. And we'll see that happen. And this is a, this is a fabulous decade to do that. I mean, I remember the Apollo program, and I know the excitement of the Apollo program because I witnessed it. <laughs> and so I can, I can tell you, if you, you know, for those that have, haven't been alive and watched the, the, the landing on the moon, man, are you in for a treat. It's going to be unbelievable. I think so. You know, if, if perseverance... You know, it was an exciting time. That was just literally the trailer yeah. for what I think yeah. is coming down the line. So, so keep you know keep working your magic at, at NASA, Jim, because I think you have a you have a captive audience in, in many of us. And thank you so much for your time today to talk to us. And uh, yeah, we'll be annoying you again, I'd say, for for an update uh, okay. maybe in a few years' time. But thank you, thanks again, Jim. Anytime, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humans of Space podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, head to skynightmagazine.com or search for us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or your usual podcast provider. 